0: So we are in Hebrews 9 as you're turning there, um, a couple brief things and then I'm going to give a really fast summary since we're already um, about 12 or 13 minutes into class. One I really appreciated two weeks ago at our last time we met, uh, the, the disagreement, that conversation that went on with, with some of y'all, uh, I liked how uh, the, the spirit of the disagreement was really nice. But here we are in church and we're disagreeing about how to read scripture and it's not, uh, you know, at each other's necks or no one was, you know, um, angry or, you know, vilifying anybody. We were just kind of lightheartedly disagreeing about how to read. I thought that was a, a nice thing to see, maybe particularly and not always uh, represented in the Church of Christ tradition. Um, and it was represented very nicely uh, here. Second, um, I want to if if you appreciate some of this stuff. Make sure you thank Lauren. She watched the kids yesterday so I could work on Sunday school lessons. So I'm doing the easy job. I'm sitting there with my Greek and my commentaries like a nerd in kind of the zone. And she's chasing around three kids, which she does all the time. So make sure you thank her um, uh, for giving me time. If the class isn't good, that's all on me. But for any of that's good, that's because I had space for that. All right, brief um, rundown of where we are so far. Part of the reason I go through the summary is so we see... Uh, not only where we've been and kind of remember that, but it also helps with interpretation. Sometimes I think the worst interpretation happens when we take a verse or we take a chapter and we don't pay attention to the larger scope of the teaching. And so when we pay attention to the larger scope, what it does is gives us some boundaries, some, um, some guidelines for how to interpret things. Um, so real quick, uh, we opened up and Hebrews shows Jesus as fully God. He's described as creator, sustainer, glory of God. He is superior to angels. Uh, So superior to those lowercase s sons of God. He is like a capital S son of God. We see Jesus exalted to the right hand of the father and his path of exaltation is faithful is through faithfulness, obedience and sacrificial love. Jesus is going to be referred to as our pioneer. And so we think as he pioneers this way to uh, the presence of God through faithfulness, obedience and sacrificial love. So we follow in those footsteps. Jesus is seen as the true son of man. So son of man can be a name for uh, humans. It's just kind of a generic title for humans, and uh, what what, uh, the Hebrew author does here is does a play on that and says he's like the capital S, Son of Man. He shows us what it means to be truly and fully human, because not only in chapter one is he fully God, but chapter two he is fully human, and part of the beauty of him being fully human is that uh, he is able to empathize with us in our temptation, Uh, he understands what we go through, and because he became fully human, he is able to heal the brokenness of our human condition. Uh, So very important here. And that makes him a merciful and faithful high priest. Chapter 3, Jesus is superior to Moses. This is the the pattern that goes throughout Hebrews. It's not that the old was bad and the new is good. It's the old is good. The new is even better. Uh, So Jesus is superior to Moses. As Moses led Israel, so our new and superior Moses, Jesus, leads the church. And because of this parallel between Moses and Israel and Jesus and the church, we can learn something from Israel about how to be the church. (laughs) And one of the things that the Hebrew author brings up is how uh, the people of Israel, despite what God had done uh, in his kind of gracious act of mercy, delivering them uh, from slavery, uh, they were unfaithful to him, they were disobedient, and so they didn't enter into rest, into the promised land. And so the Hebrew author warns us, don't be like them, having experienced deliverance from slavery as well. Having experienced redemption, don't continue or follow their path of unfaithfulness and callousness, and so not enter into rest. And so one of the things this picks up on is the um, kind of uneasy sense of the conditional nature of the covenant. We'll talk about this more in just a second in this uh, recap, but uh, what he warns or what he guides us then into uh, as we pursue rest is to, uh, and we don't want to experience the callousness of sin, Uh, he describes the word of God, and some of you know this, the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, uh, cutting through bone and marrow, soul and spirit, and in context, what this is talking about is not just this random passage about the Word of God, but as he's calling us not to experience the callousness of sin, what the Word of God is, it's like a scalpel that the surgeon can cut us open with, can remove that callous so that we might uh, continue on in faithfulness. And we go to the surgery uh, with some confidence because we have a, an empathetic and merciful high priest. So kind of mixing the metaphors, he is our priest and our surgeon. Um, And then this gets the Hebrew author thinking about how Jesus is a superior high priest, and he's going to deal with this for the next few chapters. Um, One who is made high priest not because of his lineage, but because of his faithfulness and his devotion. And this great phrase, he learned obedience through suffering, uh, as Jesus is uh, even seen as someone who um, grows in some way. He's God, but there's still this path of growth or path toward perfection, and so we follow in that. So the author says to press beyond the basics to maturity. And as he calls us to maturity, he's not saying just a maturity of intellect. You know, know some more details, do better in Bible Bowl or trivia. Uh, But it is a maturity of soul and spirit and morality. So uh, pressing beyond uh, the basics. The basics, he says, are things like repentance, faith, baptism, laying on the hands, resurrection and judgment. We don't move past these. We build on top of these. Repentance, it's this reoriented life you got to reorient first, and then you move towards where your new orientation is. Baptism is this kind of dying to an old way of life. Laying on of hands seems to reference the Spirit. So we die to an old way, and through the Spirit we are pursuing a new way of life. This is the basics. You start here, and then you press on towards maturity. Maturity is moving in that same direction that your repentance uh, and the gift of the Holy Spirit is taking you to. Um, so this is, is a serious matter. There's this expectation of faithfulness to covenant. Uh, But we need not hear this expectation of faithfulness or the conditional nature of the covenant as something where we need to uh, be in fear, as though, okay, if I screw up a little bit, am I somehow out of the covenant? Uh, That's the the wrong way to read this, um, because we have illustrations like people uh, such as Abraham, who is a model of faith. Abraham screws up, but he still is a model of faithfulness. So it's not about perfection. Uh, but it's about this faithful uh, journey or pilgrimage as the Hebrews language uh, kind of deals with. So it's not, uh, you know, kind of biting your nails, am I out, did I sin too much, uh, nor is it a complacency. So think Romans 6, should we go on sinning so grace may abound? Absolutely not. That's not how this works. Uh, it's somewhere maybe in the middle where you have a faith in the mercy of your high priest uh, and you seek to be faithful to that high priest um, Not complacency, not anxiety, um, but maturity. I've taken a lot of comfort in the Lord's Prayer. This is kind of my daily prayer. One of the things I've taken a lot of comfort in is after I pray for my daily needs, it's followed up by, uh, forgive us our debts. It's as though uh, in this daily prayer, there's this expectation that we might need daily forgiveness as well. So it's okay that we're stumbling and that we're making mistakes. That's um, That's not out of line with also living faithfully. We can hold those in intention somehow. Uh, this is not perfection, but this is a path towards maturity. Um, so maturity is important. I think what he wants us to move beyond, I think, of my um, high school version of faith, which some of you probably think I'm still in high school. I get that. I get confused for a student. Um, but, you know, the, the, the mentality was, I know I'm not supposed to do these things but I'll do it so grace may abound, essentially. I'm going to do it, and then I'll ask for forgiveness afterward, because I thought I'd found the loophole to the system. You do what you want to do, you ask for forgiveness later, and this is what the Hebrew author is saying, that's immature, that's infantile way of dealing with your faith. And if you're a baby in your faith, that's okay. But if you've been at this a while, you need to move beyond that. It's time to press beyond uh, the basics and move toward maturity. And we can do so, and we can have confidence in our high priest, uh, because he has entered into the high place, and he is like an anchor for the soul. Uh, so this beautiful uh, kind of uh, description there. Chapter 7, Jesus is a priest like Melchizedek. Sums it up nicely. Uh, like Melchizedek, he is a king of righteousness, a king of peace. He is a king who is king not by some sort of priestly lineage, uh, but because of what he has accomplished. And he is a king forever. As Melchizedek seems literally forever, no birth and no death, Jesus is literally a king uh, forever. Or a king and high priest forever. Then chapter eight sets us up for the next couple um, chapters. Two quick things from there. Uh, chapter eight introduces this idea that the old tabernacle, the old system, was like a sketch or a shadow of the new. Not bad. Contrast with the good, but a good contrasted with the better. It's a shadow. So we're going to think about uh, what is the true image uh, that this shadow is um, giving us. I don't know what's the word I'm looking for? Um, an image of. And a blueprint, all right, thank you. Uh, And finally, uh, along with that, the first covenant is like a shadow of the new covenant. So to bring us into chapter 9, I'll read this long quote from chapter 8 as he uh, references the new covenant from Jeremiah. So chapter 8, 8, the days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their ancestors on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I had no concern for them, says the Lord. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. So here's where we really focus. Here's where the kind of new is better. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach one another or say to each other, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he has made the first one obsolete, and what is obsolete and growing old will soon disappear. So now we're ready to get into chapter 9, as he's going to talk about uh, how the tabernacle and the first covenant were a sketch or a shadow of what's to come. So, chapter 9, verse 1. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly sanctuary for a tent or yours might say tabernacle was constructed the first one in which were the lampstand the table and the bread of the presence this is called the holy place behind the second curtain was a tent called the holy of holies in it stood the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant overlaid on all sides with gold in which there were a golden urn holding the manna an and Aaron's rod that budded and the tablets of the covenant above it were the cherubim of cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat of these things, we cannot speak now in detail. Why bother mentioning them if you're not going to talk about them? <laughs> but uh, he does. Uh, a couple things that I want to highlight from here that are going to set, set us up for what's uh, to come. Interestingly, he talks about this, not the temple, but the tabernacle. So he's, he's kind of sticking with this Israel in the wilderness. They didn't have a temple then. So Israel is on this journey to their promised land of rest, and they have the tabernacle. We, like Israel, are on this journey to the promised land of rest in God's presence. Rest from our struggle with sin and temptation and sickness and death and all these other things uh, that are plaguing human experience. So, uh, but there is a better tent, a better tabernacle that we look forward to. Um, So, he talks about the division in that tabernacle many of you are probably familiar with. So, you've got... um, the holy place and then the most holy place or the holy of holies so this is for a priest only and they can go in there regularly so priest and this you could say or he talks about it daily most holy place this is only for the high priest and it's only once a year uh, on the Day of Atonement. So, this division uh, of of the tabernacle, holy place, priest once a day, most holy place, very sacred place, only for one person, only once a year, and that's on the Day of Atonement. So, he's going to talk about this division, and it's get, it gets really confusing, and I I couldn't follow. Uh, the metaphors all the way, so I'm going to do my best. And part of the, the problem is he's going to talk about the, the uh, whole tabernacle as the Hagia. And this is the Hagion, and this is the Hagia in Greek. And so you're like, well, which one are you talking about when you're saying the same word over and over? Um, I'm not entirely clear, uh, so I'll do my best. But I don't know that we have to know exactly what he's referring to to understand what he's getting at. Uh, but this much we at least get. Uh, that much is, is pretty pretty straightforward Um, so I'll talk about one other thing in the most holy place the day of atonement uh, here is where the mercy seat is the mercy seat think of as the place of atonement the mercy seat is not only seen as the place of atonement uh, but it can also be seen as the place uh, where God is most present And the Old Testament can also refer to the mercy seat as God's throne. And maybe he's getting us prepared for this, even though he says I don't have time to go into detail on this. But uh, one of the authors I was reading pointed this out, and I think it really fits. That when Jesus goes into the real most holy place, of which this is a sketch of, uh, he makes atonement in a greater way. And he is in God's presence in a more profound way than the high priest ever was. This is that language of he's, we have an anchor for the soul. This is God, our our high priest behind the curtain. So Jesus, where the high priest was here, in the shadow, Jesus is for real. And Jesus is priest and king, like Melchizedek, and here he is at the throne of God, as God. So he is our high priest, our king, and our sacrifice. Right. <laughs> this is, but what you know? What else should we expect from one who is fully God, fully human, uh, who dies for his people? It shouldn't be simplistic. It shouldn't be just one little thing. It should be this kind of wow! I'll never get my mind all the way around that. Um, the day of atonement, uh, as we're going to get to in verses uh, six and seven. Uh, Such preparations having been made, the priests go continually into the first tent to carry out their ritual duties. So the priests go into the holy place continually or daily, regularly. Um, Seven, but only the high priest goes into the second, the most holy place, and he but once a year, and not without taking the blood that he offers for himself and for the sins committed unintentionally by the people. Although he doesn't develop this here, uh, this gets developed elsewhere. In So part of the contrast I think he's going to make is what many were doing, our one priest is doing. What they did regularly, ours did once for all. That's part of the contrast that I think it's going to be getting here. From many to one as superior, uh, from continuously to once for all. That is part of superiority of what Jesus has done. This is sketch, the shadow, the real thing is what Jesus has accomplished. But here where we have um, the one and once a year... The contrast seems to be with the um, limited access. So who gets to go here? Only the priest. Who gets to go here where God is most present? Only the high priest. What is this a sketch and a shadow of? Of our high priest going behind the curtain and making a way for us. Man, thank God for that, right? The stuff that we take for granted as Christians is just... um, would have been so special, I think, to a Jewish audience or people who are hearing this.
1: Hey, yeah, of course. You? Uh, this, you know, uh, just in line with that exactly, you know, that, the, the line that he has between the holy place and the most holy place is the temple curtain. Yes. And that's what was rent. The, the, when, the, when the high priest prepares to go in there, he wears five different garments. He washes in a mikvah. Five different times he washes his hands and feet ten times he sacrifices two lambs, one bull, two goats, two rams, into the holy holies three times and says the name of God three times in the holy of holies and Jesus didn't wear any garments; he was naked on the cross, and the curtain rent in two on its own, mm-hmm. and he walked straight through,
0: yeah. It is. It's beautiful. Um, Some of the stuff that that Randall is referencing, I was going to read this, but I thought, how am I going to have time to do this? And he gave it. No, no, this was... I'm glad because you know that better than I do. I couldn't have summarized it so quickly. Um, Leviticus 16. This is Day of Atonement. Uh, If you want to read 34 verses, I'm not going to do it because Randall did a nice job giving us the cliff notes, which is what I was wanting to accomplish. Um, What the high priest has to go through is insane. Uh, and, and I would say read that in light of what Jesus has done and what Jesus has made possible. Uh, if you want to think about the holiness of entering God's presence, that is a sketch of how holy, um, and pure and righteous God is so that this guy once a year goes through a bloodbath essentially to get there. And Jesus makes available to us not only in the same way, but with greater access it's wonderful. All right, uh, verse 8, and here is where the Greek is really, um, really confusing, but I think we can still get the point. By this the Holy Spirit indicates, uh, actually the Greek says, by this the Holy Spirit makes clear, and then he goes and says something obscure. Uh, so, <laughs> by this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the sanctuary, or holy place, or whatever you might have there, because it's hard to translate, has not yet been disclosed as long as the first tent uh, is still standing. I think he's speaking um, as though the old condition was still in place. This is, this is what I think is going on here. Uh, the old condition, he's saying, you know, what Israel was experiencing in that time, it wasn't entirely clear what was to come. While that tent or that tabernacle was still in place, it wasn't entirely clear what it was a sketch of. Kind of like uh, in First 1 Peter 1.10, uh, where he says, you know, the, the prophets... Uh, were prophesying about a time when they didn't quite know exactly what it was. I think there's something similar here. This is a good thing, and they're practicing with something, but it's not entirely clear what it is pointing to. Uh, So I think that's one piece of what's going on here in verse 8. During the Old Covenant, it wasn't fully clear what was to come. But the second, as he's calling people, I think, to not, not slip back into what might feel like the safety of the Jewish practice. Keep in mind, Christianity is a baby religion. And in that culture, new is not better. It is not the 21st century American culture. New is worse. Old is where you get your security. Old gives you, um, gives you some uh, legitimacy. New religion, less legitimate. So when you're starting to be persecuted, you're starting to wonder if God's really paying attention, you think, well, there's, I think the, temp- the temple is still standing then. You've got this ancient religion, maybe... Maybe that's maybe where more truth is. And so what he's going to say, not only was that a sketch of what's to come, but I think he's also saying, don't go back to that. When you turn back uh, to that old sacrificial system, um, it's things will start getting fuzzy again. As long as you're looking at that, you're not going to fully understand who Jesus is. It's like uh, getting corrective eye surgery so you see well, and then putting on your old glasses, and things get fuzzy again. Uh, so, Look to Christ. So verse 9 and 10, he's going to show how Christ has, has shown us maybe better how to think about that system. This is a symbol of the present time during which gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various baptisms, regulations for the body imposed until the time comes to set things right. So, if you're a Jew, and you are uh, believe that the Messiah has not yet come, and you're reading verses 9 and 10, or hearing this, you think, you're wrong. The sacrificial system is effective. It does do what it's supposed to do. But, in light of Christ, in light of the resurrection, what it shows is... Uh, The inadequacies of the first covenant. Some of these inadequacies, inadequacies, I need to choose a different word that I can say easier. (laughs) Some of these things weren't recognized until Christ has come. But that's what we should expect. When Christ comes, it's like, oh, it's like shining a light on something. Like, you remember when HD TVs came out and you're like, oh man, you can see all the makeup on those newscasters, right? (laughs) What happens is the imperfections are seen that weren't noticed before. And part of this imperfection that's seen, because why else needs there to be uh, the death of God-made flesh unless that old system wasn't quite cutting it? Unless that old system was maybe good but not perfect. Unless that old system was giving us a glimpse of the true thing to come. And so I think that's that's what's going on here. Uh, So that old system, it's like he's saying... It deals mostly with the external, and what we need is something that deals with the internal as well. And this is getting us then back to that new covenant language where he's going to write the law on our hearts. Even Jeremiah was kind of pointing the way to this. Old system was good, but particularly in light of Christ, we see how it was pointing to something so much better. All right, verse 11. But when Christ came... As a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy place, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls with the sprinkling of the ashes of a heifer sanctifies those who have been defiled so that their flesh is purified, how much more Will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to worship the living God? So here's where he's really drawing that nice contrast there. The old system and what Christ has done. He enters the Greek, there is literally a more perfect tent. Old is good, the new is more perfect and he enters not with the blood of animals, but with his own blood. And I think when we get in chapter 10, this idea of the supremacy of Christ's sacrifice will get dealt with more, so I won't go into detail, uh, but I'll let Randall uh, deal with that. Okay. Uh, but he, he comes in with his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. Redemption language there, this is the language of the Exodus. Uh, redeeming Israel out of slavery. Redemption is slave language. This is, you buy someone out of slavery. What has our high priest done? He has not only only brought us forgiveness and atonement, he's not only king and priest, but he is also redeemer. Redeeming us from our slavery. Not just forgiving us before judgment, which we'll talk about later. uh, But there is a sense in which uh, sin enslaves us. And we are redeemed from that sin through this death. And then verse 13 is that same idea, um, what the blood of, bo- of goats and bulls uh, and so forth was pointing to is found in so much fuller and more satisfying ways through Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. Uh, what it means through the eternal spirit, Luke Timothy Johnson, this guy who studied this well, he says, quote, that's not at all clear. <laughs> so, so that made me feel better. Uh, because it wasn't clear to me either, um, so we won't get too caught up on that verse fourteen uh, he's purifying our conscience from dead works uh, in the context of Hebrews, dead works can refer to two things: it can refer to sinful actions these are dead practices, the old sinful practices we had so much of the 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 language throughout Hebrews is calling us to um, to a moral um, Moral change, moral transformation. So it makes sense that dead works would refer to sinful practice. But because we're also contrasting first covenant and old covenant, that it's probably also the dead in the sense of unable to accomplish those kind of works of the law. They are uh, not life-giving in that sense, dead. Not dead in the sense of bad. So that, then, verse 14, the other piece of it, Why does he do this? Don't leave out that last little phrase there, so we might worship or serve the living God. It's not an in and of itself. He doesn't do this stuff just because, but uh, there is a response that goes with this. Why? So we might serve or worship God. Why does the high priest go through all that he goes through to go in there? So he might serve or worship God in the most holy place. Why do we need this purification? So that we might worship a holy God. Whatever What Hebrews does is, is it won't let us get away from the holiness of God. There is no downplaying the holiness of God. And what's beautiful about that is when you highlight or when you uh, emphasize how holy God is, it also emphasizes the atonement uh, and the, um, the access that Jesus has accomplished through his death. You downplay God's holiness, you downplay the sacrifice. So uh, the kind of images of, of God, like a divine Santa Claus, uh, divine grandparents kind of thing, uh, where he just doesn't care, he's whatever, that doesn't make sense of the sacrifice. It doesn't make sense of the shadow. Uh, it's something, um, it's, it's belittling uh, this gift, and it's confusing our theology. So verse 15, for this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant. So this brings us back to that Jeremiah language, which has been prepared this whole time. He is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance because a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions under the first covenant. Um, What we're going to get here in 15 and 16, I'll go ahead and 16, uh, where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. So um, the Hebrew author is going to make a play on words here. The word that means covenant, he's talking about the first covenant and the second covenant, is the same word for will, or last will and testament kind of way. So he's going to say basically, uh, you know, a will isn't valid until someone has deceased. Uh, and he's going to say it's kind of the same with the covenant. Covenant isn't valid until uh, there has been a death. And he's going to say how that was actually the way covenant was practiced, uh, or the first covenant was, uh, was established as well. Uh, but maybe what's more interesting here. Um, is this connection of Jesus' death or blood and the establishment of a new covenant. So Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, we read, it talks about covenant. It picks up on ideas like uh, the new covenant will give us greater access to God. Increased access to God. Increased Ability to obey. The law will be written on our hearts and our minds. That increased access or intimacy or closeness with God uh, is picked up in language. They shall not teach one another or say to each other, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. It's just this beautiful kind of poetic description of the closeness we might have to God. Uh, and a fuller sense of forgiveness. You get this at the end of that quote. What's the new covenant going to look like in Jeremiah? Greater access to God, greater ability uh, to be faithful, to hold up our end of the covenant, and a fuller sense of forgiveness. And we get that fuller sense of forgiveness at the end of Jeremiah. I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Uh, This language of blood and new covenant also gets picked up in Luke 22, and in 1 Corinthians 11, when uh, we have the Last Supper or the celebration of that uh, with the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11. So when we're thinking about communion, if you've already done it or when you do it in the future, uh, we might think about this in New Covenant terms. As we celebrate communion, it's not just a celebration of death, of what Jesus has, um, of Jesus dying for our sins, which is part of it, but it's also a celebration of Jesus achieving this New Covenant. It's a celebration when you take bread and you drink that wine uh, that now we have greater access to God. Not just we don't have to face the judgment uh, but that now we can approach God in ways uh, that were limited to others before that. That in this New Covenant we have this expected uh, and this increased ability to obey. The law is written in our minds and hearts and I think this is a reference to the Holy Spirit. Uh, and a greater and fuller sense of forgiveness, uh, which is always kind of at the front, but uh, doesn't always need to be the, um, the only kind of player in this. All right, let me speed up. I'll get through this in five minutes. Uh, Verse 17, For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Hence, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment had been told to all the people by Moses in accordance with the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the scroll itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God has ordained for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So here, the Christ sacrifice, as we're looking at the shadow, uh, is associated with things like the establishment of the covenant uh, and the purification and forgiveness. Verse 23, Thus it was necessary for the sketches of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves need better sacrifices than these. So bringing us back, this is a sketch of the true thing. And and what's really going to get highlighted here is how this is a sketch of being in the presence of God. This is what one is looking forward to the most. Uh, the holy place is a sketch. And uh, goats and bulls aren't going to get you in the presence of God. Something more significant is needed. So verse 24 for Christ did not enter a sanctuary made by human hands, a mere copy of the true one, but he entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. See the, the contrast, or the, the, not contrast, the uh, the shadow and the real thing is the most holy place and heaven itself. This is what it was a sketch of. What the high priest was doing, our high priest accomplished in greater and more profound ways. What that high priest did in the earthly tabernacle our high priest is doing in the heavenly tabernacle. Amen, right? And, and this, this same idea gets picked up in Revelation 21. You have this, this beautiful symbolism. And in this city, there is no temple. Why don't you need a temple or a tabernacle? Because God is dwelling with his people there. Because that was always a sketch. It was always a foreshadowing of the good thing to come. And why? Doesn't there need to be a temple, and why is God dwelling there? Because of what our high priest has accomplished by sacrificing, of all things, himself. Nor was it to offer himself again and again as the high priest enters the holy place year after year with blood that is not his own. For then he would have had to suffer again and again since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the age to remove sin by the sacrifice of himself. So what they do continually or annually, Jesus did once. And he can't do that again year after year after year because he can't die that often. Um, So it's kind of the the obvious way of saying it. Even some translations turn the word suffer to make it clear into die, Um, which kind of prepares verse 27. It's appointed for mortals to die once and after that the judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him so what how is he saving us in verse 28 we see he is saving us by bearing sins and then looking back at verse 27 he is saving us from judgment that language of bearing sins might make us think of the suffering servant who bore the transgressions of many and then uh, chapter 10 is going to talk more about the superiority of christ's sacrifice so try to burn through this as quick as possible randall what what would you add to uh, chapter 9
1: just uh, I'm I'm, uh, I love watching you do this because I think this is something that you've struggled with all day long yesterday and you cannot do this. And I challenge anybody the privacy of their own cloister to read this and not just be awed at the majesty of what has just gone on. Mm -hmm. This is amazing. And I I appreciate your sensitivity. Uh, Thank you. This idea of access uh-huh. You know, oftentimes in this country, our system gets criticized because you have to pay to have access to the governor or the legislators or the president yeah. or the people in Congress. You have to pay to enter somebody to introduce you or, or to get you to where the decision maker If you're a commissioned salesperson, you go into a company, you're trying to figure out who the decision maker is. If you don't know them, somebody to introduce you to them. here. Jesus has introduced us to the decision maker. Yeah, he's provided universal access. We don't have to go to anybody else. We don't have to pay. Yeah, we just have to embrace him.
0: It's a it's a powerful. I mean, and to think about what this says about how God views us, or that He would make this possible. Right. And it's I mean, in a democratized society, we have some sense of the uh, you know the equality of individuals even though we don't practice it necessarily. But that is not a first century mindset, and that's not necessarily a Jewish mindset. I mean, there is uh, all life is sacred, but there is still a sense of hierarchy. Jesus has done male, female, young, old, uh, high status, low status. It just flattens it. And you think about who you are in light of that. If our fundamental identity is seen from God's point of view, not from our culture's point of view, what does that tell us about who we are ultimately? Man, that's good news, right? What a good high priest and king and sacrifice we have. All right. See you all um, Yeah, next Sunday, Hebrews 10.